science is somehow considered to be holy when it's communicated from the government platform, but when science arises elsewhere, they censor it. The evidence that, for example, ivermectin is effective in treating COVID, and particularly when uh, administered early on with symptoms, is extraordinary. Many people have had their lives saved by ivermectin, and yet because Dr. Fauci has ruled them out as treatments and is focusing entirely on the vaccine, people are denied access to that information. The government has said, oh, no, we're the experts. And what we say is everyone should be vaccinated. And that's the only answer. They don't invite the critics of the vaccine who are in the scientific community to offer opinion. Instead, they say, oh, no, get more vaccines. Be vaccinated again and again and again. This glorious thing, the Declaration of Independence, the second paragraph of which really defines what it means to be an American, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with uh, unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Felix Frankfurter was a socialist. He absolutely despised free enterprise, and he ended up being the father of the administrative state. He wanted to defeat the separation of powers. He wanted to invest in single hands, legislative, executive, and judicial power, and thereby create an authoritarian regime that would be independent of the Constitution's allocation of power. Socialism is a bankrupt idea. It just doesn't work. Individual freedom of choice is a defining characteristic of humanity. It is morally evil in the same way as slavery to have the state be your master. It divorces from humanity that characteristic that defines them, which is free agency. It takes away from you freedom until you end up being just a tool or an instrument or a robot of the state. This is an opportunity society. That is to say, so long as you are free, you can achieve. There are people like me who, my whole career, I've been suing the government. I'm representing companies and individuals and scientists who have been restricted or censored or have had their lives altered fundamentally without just cause. So there are precious few of us swinging the ax in the other direction. Jonathan, it is fantastic to be able to talk to you. And, and what a moment in history we get to talk again, because um, I'm thinking back to only a few years ago when we were over with you for the 20 year anniversary of E. Morden Associates, the Sacred Fire of Liberty um, event that you had. Um, and um, we are actually in A&H, just about to have our 20th anniversary this May. So um, we've known each other for a long time and um, as colleagues and friends. And um, uh, But the world is a strange, a much more strange place than it was. Um, how do you see at your end? Well, uh, authoritarianism is on the march, literally. Uh, we see it not only in Putin's invasion of the Ukraine, but within countries of the West, we've seen the governments behave in a very authoritarian manner, censoring free speech, uh, trying to drive out of existence any dissent to government orthodoxies and insisting on these mask and vaccine mandates, denying people their personal autonomy, freedom of choice uh, over such intimate decisions as to what chemical to introduce into their bodies. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, we see that Omicron has proved itself to be a natural immunity effect uh, such that it's precipitously dropping cases worldwide and in the United States, causing tremendous political pressure to be brought 
upon those who are decision makers to eliminate these mandates. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the agenda that they have remains in place. And at any point in time, they can resort back to those same draconian measures because they've laid a precedent for it. Um, only to the extent that courts have knocked that down uh, is there an impediment. But otherwise, these authoritarians are dead set on retaining those powers and using them in other areas. So, But, it, but yeah, it's, it's not just what they're doing. You know, a number of things have happened to us as well. We, we see this extraordinary polarization in societies where people are, are coming up against, you know, friends and colleagues, family members that, that they've been at one with um, up until now. And cancel culture, uh, as, as, you, as you say in your extraordinary book that we'll be talking more about, um, cancel culture has existed many times before, and it is actually part and parcel of an authoritarian regime. But but people are canceling each other now. This polarization, certainly in my lifetime, um, I'm sure in yours too, um, it's never happened this way in Western so-called democracies. Um, is there a way out for the people? Do you see a way out for the people? Or do we need to just see mass regime change and get these authoritarians out of position and, and get democratic leaders back in place? Well, we do need regime change. Uh, what, we, what we're experiencing is really a result of the failure of people to stridently defend their individual liberty against these movements. And that's in large measure because people were kind of uh, paralyzed into fear, and fear tends to enable the government uh, to take away your rights. Uh, uh, Rahm Emanuel, former Obama administration official who was the mayor of Chicago, said that one should never allow an emergency to go to waste. Uh, and that is, uh, there's an opportunity for a power grab with every instance where the public can be led to believe that a crisis is at hand. And then they can be led to believe that there is an answer from government and that uh, it's a patriotic duty then to follow through with whatever uh, the government demands. In this situation, uh, people were in Canada and the United States and UK and France and Italy and throughout the Western world, Spain, all over, uh, we were led to believe that uh, we should relinquish our freedom of choice, follow through with whatever the government demands of us, because otherwise there would be a mass casualty level that would exceed all possible imagining. This would be the worst pandemic in the history of the world. Well, uh, that uh, deprivation of liberty comes at a very high cost because it sets a precedent. And it creates an opportunity for continuous pillaging of your rights from that point forward. And so we see, for example, in Canada, uh, using the pretext of what was a peaceful assembly of people in the truckers' convoy, um, you've got a prime minister in Trudeau who declared an emergency under the Emergencies Act. And revoked people's civil liberties and specifically attacked his uh, political opponents by 
characterizing them as effectively terrorists and going after them. And in the case of these poor truckers, seizing their trucks, seizing their bank accounts, uh, blocking them from being employed variously, denying them a right to travel and punishing them severely uh, to the point of depriving them of a livelihood as his way of responding to political opinion against them. He never met with them. He never engaged in any reasonable discussion with them. What they were asking was most reasonable. They were asking for an elimination of mandates and a restoration of individual liberty. Uh, we all ought to rally around that. But Trudeau, of course, is a petty tyrant. And as a result, he wouldn't meet with them because he had no intention of giving any quarter to them. His whole point was to unleash the police upon them. That's what he found most comfortable. So, so they don't have a constitution the way that you have a constitution. Typically, if the uh, right to protest is a protected right, they would be essentially, uh, you know, protesting and 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 not be stopped in doing so. And we now see. Um, essentially an economic war being waged. And I think many people have already understood that there is a link between um, the, our liberty in terms of choosing a particular healthcare choice, as well as our liberty in terms of how we choose to acquire money and then spend money. And if the state is able to control that, they really do have us by the short and curlies. So in what way could the Canadian constitution, and then maybe let's just look at how that might apply to the US, where obviously you've got um, an extraordinary and very important constitution that you are a master of. Um, does that mean nothing like Canada could ever happen on American soil? Uh, there is a huge distinction between the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the American Constitution, in that the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is predicated on the notion that it is an act of parliament. Essentially, it, it derives from parliament, parliament created it, and uh, the, it, it expressly includes within it provision for revocation of all of the rights declared uh, by parliament or by the provincial legislatures. Um, that means that really there is no security for anyone's rights in Canada. They created an emergency, Parliament created an Emergencies Act, which enabled the deprivation of rights by the Prime Minister. And uh, as a consequence, Canadians were, are entirely beholden to the state as to whether or not from day to day they will have a freedom of speech, freedom of press, uh, freedom to, to travel, uh, will have rights to their own property, uh, enjoy any degree of liberty. Uh, so. The distinction is that in the United States, really uniquely in the world, um, the Constitution of the United States, the Declaration of Independence preceding it, are all foundations of Lockean principle turned into reality in that you have rights understood to be natural rights uh, derived from God, not from the state. As a consequence, they're pre-political and the state is obliged to honor them because they're unalienable. So those, that's the philosophical foundation of rights in America as opposed to rights in Canada. And rights in America then uh, are, have a strong hold in, in jurisprudence. So courts 
reflexively comprehend when someone says my freedom of speech is being violated, that they're actually talking about their freedom of speech as opposed to what parliament or what Congress would declare that freedom to be. So their rights in the United States are against the state. One of the most extraordinary things about the Bill of Rights is that these are rights against government. So it's a government being created based on the idea that people are sovereign. People are sovereign. They are sovereign to protect their rights against the state. They have recourse to the courts for that purpose. And that's highly uh, unusual in the history of the world. All right, well, uh, you asked whether that, that is a sure assurance against rights violation. No, it's not. It's not, as we could well see, the Biden administration has violated rights with impunity. And it has done so based on uh, unconstitutional actions of the president acting without resorting to the legislature in the first instance, Congress, uh, and so violating the separation of powers. And then also, of course, ultimately, uh, if you look at the, the circumstances, he's violating the individual rights of people to liberty and property. So he, he created a uh, mandate through the Occupational Safety and Health Administration that would require every company with 100 or more employees to be vaccinated or to be weekly tested. But he made weekly testing so onerous and difficult uh, that it would be virtually impossible for anyone to do. So effectively, he's compelled everyone to be vaccinated in every company 100 or more arbitrarily selected 100 or more. If he got that upheld by the courts, then he would immediately go to under 100 all the way down to every individual who's employed. And notice that if you didn't get a vaccine, you would be unemployed. So you would lose your job. So it's compelling you to do it. All right. That was struck down by the Supreme Court. But in an inconsistent decision, based on 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 the Constitution, isn't it? Based on the separation of powers, yeah, yeah. they didn't get down to the granular level of individual rights, although they indicated that this was the most extraordinary expansion of federal power and deprivation of individual liberty, uh, in so many words. But but they never reached that as the core basis for decision. Instead, they were able to say, and so they didn't go for, further they were able to say that it violated the separation of powers, that the president cannot, has no power under the constitution to unilaterally act in this way, and the executive doesn't. And so it would have to be originate in Congress. Um, but uh, then when they looked at the mandates through Medicare and Medicaid to uh, healthcare practitioners, they did a volt face. They flipped uh, their rationale and there, even though it was on flimsy grounds, they said that Congress had acted uh, variously in the Medicare CMS statute to provide, when you look at multiple provisions and combine them, some sort of organic power to compel the healthcare practitioners to be vaccinated. Um, that was rubbish uh, and con contradicted their, their uh, OSHA mandate decision. So there you have it. And so, uh, I think it was Justice Potter Stewart who said of the Supreme Court while he was while he was a justice um, that we're not final because we're infallible. We're infallible because we're final. And uh, it is the point that they're fallible. And so, indeed, they they here have made a mistake, I think. However, 
Um, it's a far greater defense of freedom than you are seeing in Canada by preventing the employer mandate, which would have affected tens of millions of Americans. Um, it, has, it, it has prevented that from happening, has severely weakened the president and has led to an uprising uh, where individuals are making changes both on the local and the state and the national level. And the, and the, and, and the, the direction is clearly in favor of eliminating mask mandates, eliminating uh, vaccine mandates in the United States. All, all, all made a lot easier because Omicron is much, much more mild and it's much harder to argue that this is um, an issue that, that requires a kind of collectivist approach. And, and, and it's belying I mean, state propaganda and it's belying uh, big tech. Big tech has, has been united with government in performing the role of censorship so that this marketplace of ideas, which is absolutely indispensable to deal with any emerging any emergency of any kind. You need a free flow of information. You need uh, all manner of scientists to be able to contribute their views and their and their research to the public forum and their and their professional fora. And you need the public to be engaged as well. Out of this come comes a multiplicity of responses that provide potential solutions and answers. Uh, and this is this is the way in which we have overcome in the history of the world every major obstacle to progress and uh, to, to the survival of our, our race, uh, that is the human race. And so when it comes to this one size fits all approach, this Soviet style approach of Lysenkoism, where you have but one doctrine that you endorse officially here, that mass vaccination, and look at look at the consequences we can see readily and there will be histories written about this about the luddite nature of decision making in this era by government you have this mantra of vaccinate vaccinate and even to the extent that that uh, treatments early treatments have been shown to be extraordinarily effective like ivermectin uh, and, and even, uh, even drugs like Paxlovid, which carry with them adverse effects, but nonetheless, a substantial reduction in hospitalizations and deaths. All right, you, and, and, and monoclonal antibodies and so forth. And so you have all of that. And rather than these governments in the UK and the United States and Europe generally advocating early treatment, and, and, and pounding the drum on early treatment. They only pounded the drum on vaccination. And yeah. so people are, and, and the, 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 the folly of it became apparent because the vaccine was not capable of, of preventing you from being infected. And so variants, you were people being infected by the Delta variant, many, many thousands of people died worldwide. Had they been early treated, they likely would have survived. But they, they, they could not uh, play that particular game. They kept away from the public, the notion that if there were other uh, interventions that were effective, they wouldn't be able to get the fast track emergency use authorization. So they had to find all sorts of ways of, of manipulating information around ivermectin and all the other early treatments. Um, and it's to also a sound, it also introduces, uh, propagandists don't like uh, uh, a competition of ideas in the market. Obviously, that's why you have censorship. That's why you have propaganda. It's to create a one-size-fits-all approach for people, to give them a dictator 
a dictation that they must follow. And, and what they did in this instance was place all their bets on vaccination. And they didn't want any sound in the market coming up about treatments because that would reduce the level of vaccination. So they set official goals like, you know, 100% vaccination, 80%, 90%, 70%. And they, they pushed and pushed to attain that. And they looked at anything that took away from that message as bad, even to the extent that in the United States, there are hospitals and they're all in, integrated into this through CMS. And they were turning away people who were ill because they had not been vaccinated in the last rush of, of Omicron and so forth, turning them away because they refused to be vaccinated. Person who was going to have a heart needed a heart transplant, a person needed a kidney uh, to be given to them. They refused to perform operations in these two instances at specific institutions because the people were not vaccinated. I mean, this is, and, and you have a president who, uh, overtly talks about the vaccinated and praises them and talks about the unvaccinated and condemns them and tries to pit the two against one another. And this whole idea of dividing people, which is which is necessary for Marxism. Uh, yeah, look, the, I mean, on, on that point, the, the narrative has has pretty much fallen apart to try and maintain a mass vaccination, mass masking, social isolation. It, it has now fallen apart. And you could argue, uh, and I do not want to be an opportunist here, that that um, Putin's decision to invade Ukraine has um, changed the focus of the world on what is going on there. But we do have another situation that is borderline emergency, even outside of Ukraine, um, with, with uh, the potential for nuclear war being... Um, voice certainly in many parts of the world um do you think this there is any connection here is is there a way in which existing authoritarian leaders such as the bidens of this world the trudeaus the macrons um can utilize the situation that was gifted to them by SARS-CoV-2 to maintain a situation in which individual liberties are still not available for general use. Yes, you can see uh, a movement, as oftentimes is the case in a war environment, um, towards censorship of dissenting voices uh, to maintain a pro-administration uh, position and to uh, scuttle all opposition to that position. Um, fortunately for us, at least here in the United States, the idiocy of Biden, uh, his failure to uh, impose sanctions in advance of the invasion, his, his reliance on what are meager sanctions that were already calculated and baked into Putin's uh, plan for invasion, and his failure to uh, arm uh, the Ukrainians in, in ways that would provide a meaningful defense and recognize at the outset that we are talking about a war of counterinsurgency and that these people, uh, if properly armed, would be able to throw off much of the attempt to create a uh, pro-Soviet or pro-Russian state. And, and uh, that's, of course, essential for the freedom of Europe. Now, what's interesting is that Europe was very slow to come to the realization 
that Putin meant it. Uh, it's kind of shocking to see that um, Europe did not appreciate with 100 uh, plus thousand troops on the border of Ukraine that Putin would actually, actually did intend to invade, particularly because after the Crimea, uh, it was rather public that Putin's intentions were to, to take more of, of Ukraine and that he was constantly uh, blaming uh, Ukraine for all manner of things and, and to churn up popular support for action against <clears throat> the Ukraine. But um, even now, uh, while it's good to see Germany do a volt face, to use a German term, mm -hmm. uh, and, and actually give Stinger missiles and, and, uh, and also uh, uh, Javelin uh, anti-tank missiles um, in large numbers, the, and there's been, there's been more afoot, of course, in the rest of Europe too, to give assistance, we really need a very strong strategy through NATO and, and independently by the United States um, to take advantage of this, to cause the Ukraine to be yet another uh, Afghanistan for, for Russia. And it very easily can be that. It can be a costly, uh, tremendously costly and, uh, and hugely detrimental force that will pull down Russia as an antagonist to NATO and as an antagonist to the free world. And that is, it, that is, that is tremendously possible um, given the Ukrainians' response. So we can endorse freedom. We can ensure, that's not to say that, that Ukraine is the model of, of, uh, of, of, of libertarianism. It's certainly not. No. But the Ukrainian people are resilient and mean to be independent. And out of this can spring a, uh, a form of government that would be more protective of their rights, actually. So even though, and, and but regardless, it is the interest of the free world to contain this expansionism by Russia because he, he has overtly stated and recently uh, in talking about the invasion, that it was his intent also to potentially take Poland and Latvia and Lithuania. And I mean, he's, he's posing a direct threat uh, to NATO and to, and, and the raising of the, uh, while, while it's symbolic, I think more of a gesture to rattle his saber, he's, he, his, his raising of the alert level on his nuclear forces um, is troublesome because you, 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 you don't want to put people closer to the trigger point with a nuclear weapon. And, what he, and, and we don't know exactly who he means that to apply to. Is it you, the Ukrainians? No, I don't think so. It's not just the Ukrainians. It's really NATO. It's and NATO. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when there's an external threat, be it a virus or be it the potential for a world war, it actually does spawn a desire for people to group together. If you like, it is pro-collectivism. And, and it's, it's interesting you hear this discussion as if, um, you know, because uh, you, you, you've long been opposed to the, uh, the, the way in which uh, the European Union goes about its business with an unelected group of officials in the European Commission, essentially, 
making decisions on behalf of half a billion people across the 27 European member states. Um, I too have been heavily involved in that in that process. Um, in to some degree, it is it is just about relativity. Uh, you know, moving to the European model is is better than than a a, a dictatorial model. Um, but um, let, if we can just sort of talk about this collectivist ideal, it's possible, is it not, that as we saw in the early stages of SARS-CoV-2, people came together saying, look, this external threat is big, we've got to come together. But after a year or so, people were at each other, other's throats um, in realizing that, that the nuances of interpretation the dichotomy between what they were seeing through the mainstream media versus what they were seeing on the burgeoning alternative media. Um, you know, we haven't had a chance yet to see what's really going on in the Ukraine. To some degree, MSM has taken over. And, and I do find it interesting that the very people who were condemning most of the information in mainstream media around COVID are now buying into everything that they're seeing. Um, and, um, you know, uh, from our point of view, we, we feel we have to keep eyes, minds, hearts wide open because we're likely to be seeing various propaganda machines playing out against each other. And it's not easy in these early stages to, to get accurate information. But all of this could push further interest in a grouping together, NATO, EU, um, international treaties, let's get in together against those baddies in, in Russia or China, wherever you, it's going to be. Could this, could this spawn more collectivism and less individual liberty? It will. Um, that's always the tension and danger. Uh, in our history in the United States, um, Whenever there has been a conflict, World War One, World War Two, uh, there has been censorship, uh, state censorship, and there has been this conflict where dissenting voices have uh, been punished, and then they have resorted to court, and in some instances, uh, they have been vindicated and their rights have been uh, protected. Uh, the Eugene Debs case is a famous case of a socialist dissenter whose views were antithetical to my own, but nonetheless, as Voltaire, to paraphrase Voltaire, I mean, I, I, I will defend to my death your right to say that which I disagree with, uh, so many words. I, I, I think uh, the right decision was ultimately reached there, which was to say, you may not censor this dissenting voice uh, on the pretext of uh, protecting uh, the draft or uh, avoiding influences on potential draftees. That's the very point of the First Amendment, uh, freedom of speech and press, is to protect from the state the minority that wishes to, to dissent. So we our rights are at, at always uh, jeopardized by majorities. Um, majoritarian values, whether it's an internal uh, situation, uh, insurrection, something of that sort, or external war or, or a pandemic or whatever, in every one of those instances, there will be censorship. And it's precisely then that liberty is tried 
and and rights are at stake and that people must coalesce and defend individual rights, usually it can oftentimes boil down to one lone voice against this massive collective of the state and trying to argue for the freedom to to say something that is repugnant to those in power or that uh, otherwise suggests to them that uh, you you are undeserving of your liberties. So, um, so I mean, on, on that front, we don't see what we saw in the civil rights movement in America with, with people like Martin Luther King uh, as, a, as a, you know, as a spokesperson for so many. We now see the development of BLM and Antifa. I, I've, I, I followed some of the work of Coleman Hughes and realized there was a flaw in it. When I read your book, you, you have a lot of the background there. It will make and, and it's your book, Authoritarians, plug, plug, please read it. It is an extraordinary uh, tome. Um, but but it makes uncomfortable reading only because it does appear as if these are machinations of a system that wants you to fall in behind it, but they're not really in the public interest. So can you just tell us, um, you know, summarize really what BLM, Antifa, and these kinds of organizations that pose as civil rights organizations are actually up to? So BLM and Antifa are Marxist organizations at root. Um, and their leaders have said as much. They've admitted rather frankly that they're Marxist organizations. In Europe, they functioned as a Marxist organization, Antifa first, and they're militant groups. Uh, they believe in using violence uh, to achieve their objectives. And so we've seen that, of course, we see them looting and, and committing arson and even committing murder, uh, individual members. Uh, and their purpose is to tear down governments, to tear down the free enterprise system and to replace it with a movement that is race-based as a source of division Instead of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, they're dealing with whites and people of color. They simply have changed the dynamic because in a highly affluent society, the argument uh, for Marxism is taboo, even to the point that many people said before the rise of Antifa and BLM that Marxism was effectively dead worldwide. Uh, however, they have been able to stoke those flames by deceiving people. And deception is, a, is an avowed purpose of these uh, Marxists. They speak in terms of deception. Uh, freedom of speech is censorship and so forth, as Orwell explained in 1984. This is, the, this is their point. They try to convince people that they are the, the, the defender of the oppressed and that they're going to liberate people who are of color from uh, the, the uh, uh, racism that is coming from those who are not of color. Uh, and so they purposefully divide people. And what's so extraordinary is that in societies that are largely free of racism and that have extraordinary pro legal protections against uh, instances of discrimination, uh, and the dream of Martin Luther King having largely been achieved, uh, they introduced the idea that no, uh, 
there's everything is systemically racist, all institutions, not because you per se have discriminated against someone, but because the institutions were created at a time in the history of the country when they claim uh, the predominant mo movers and shakers were racists and have infected effectively these institutions with racism and they're hopelessly racist. And so they tell their message is, if you are of color, uh, you will always be a victim. You can never succeed because the system is, is stacked against you. And therefore you must revolt against it and tear it down and replace it with a new Marxism predicated on race, where those who are considered oppressors, white supremacists, will be looted and all of their uh, resources will be, will be uh, redistributed to those of color. And so we come up with reparations and so forth, which this is, this is a preposterous idea. It's actually a form of corruption of blood that was rejected in the constitution. The idea that the sins of the fathers should be imputed to their children and the children should be forced to pay for the sins of the fathers. And, and likewise, they distort history grossly. So for example, in America, they would have you believe that in 1619 in the Jamestown colony around Eastern time, some 20 uh, black slaves arrived and that that was the origin of the United States. The reality is, and they, they don't tell the full history purposefully to distort it. The reality is uh, four months before Easter of 1619, 100 white slaves arrived from Bridewell in London uh, and formed the base of the colony for slavery. And after the 20 arrived, it was a one-off event for many years thereafter in Jamestown, the arrivals were all white and they were all indentured servants, but the indentures at the time were so heavily stacked in favor of the owner of the indenture that it was slavery. And they are right to call the 20 indentured black slaves. They're wrong to suggest that slavery in America was exclusively a black phenomena. In point of fact, uh, there were many white slaves, tens of thousands of Irish and English were enslaved in the colonies and were enslaved in the new nation. And when uh, the Emancipation Proclamation came down in 1863, um, Whites and Blacks were liberated by the Emancipation Proclamation. And when the 13th Amendment came down, ending slavery in the United States, Whites and Blacks were liberated. Now, it is certainly true that as of 1860, there were 4 million Black slaves in America. And we're talking about tens of thousands of white slaves. So there's quite a bit of difference. However, they don't reference that there is this history of white slavery in America. Not only that, they don't tell you that even as early as 1620s, one of the black slaves we know of uh, named Johnson, who was in, uh, took on the name of his, his owner uh, in, uh, in Jamestown, was manumitted and became a slave owner himself. And not only that, we find blacks owning slaves in America all the way up to the time of the Civil War. Indeed, by 1860, uh, in, in Louisiana, for example, there was Antoine Dubouclet, who was a black person who was not a slave, 
freed and owned hundreds of slaves on a plantation that was one of the largest in, in Louisiana, and he was one of the wealthiest slave owners in Louisiana. Um, so you see, the point of trying to create this segregation of the races is historically inaccurate because there are descendants in America of black slave owners, mm. and they're black. Uh, and there are descendants of uh, individuals who were white slaves in America who happened to be white. And there are numerous ones where the races combined who, who are neither white nor black. And the point is that this is ridiculous to try to divide us. We are together in condemning slavery. We are together in condemning racism. We should all be viewed as Americans or as people at large. We should not be viewed, uh, we should not be given a, a, a stigma predicated on the relative level of reflection of light on the surface of the skin. Whether one, in a dark room, we are all of one race. In a, in, in, among the light, we have varying shades. Who cares? It's superficial. It ought to be. And we, we must to ensure that we have equal protection of the law, which ought to be our goal. We must ensure that we do not base decisions through law and government uh, and in society based on the superficial distinction, which is the relative pigment of your skin. The, the, his, the history books, unfortunately, do um, uh, taint people's perception of what's going on and, the, and and clearly the history not just of, of america but pretty much all colonies needs to be rewritten um uh, that aside we're seeing in the present moment if we don't address the the problems in i mean let's face it the the the, the canadian truckers are being you know uh, characterized as as terrorists as as alt-right fascists um, and um, frankly, you know, people who do tear down monuments of of, of colonials, um, you know, the, the, there is a, a a debate about whether that was okay to do. That they're generally not pitched as being terrorists by the mainstream media. So we, we do have an issue in terms of how we communicate um, reality as well as history. Surely. Right. So you have these enormous contradictions. I mean, they're they're grotesque, uh, whereby they completely ignore the law violations, the looting, the, the murders. They even have uh, prosecutors who won't prosecute against a person of color who's committed a crime. Uh, and you, you have no uh, compunction about allowing murderers to go off uh, from jail and not to be incarcerated and to be allowed to avoid bail and to, so you're allowing uh, with these Soros, George Soros backed district attorneys across the United States and virtually every municipality where he's dumped in all this money and gotten these people elected. Those people are, are fulfilling their promise to Soros by ensuring that they destroy the criminal justice system. And they basically argue that social justice is no justice at all. And so they liberate the jails of people who are hardened criminals and they refuse to prosecute hardened criminals. And so you have instances all over the United States where people in New York and in, California, in Los Angeles, uh, where these DAs and uh, in Chicago, 
refuse to prosecute, allowing these people who are uh, veteran uh, criminals to continue to engage in these crimes. And you have the highest crime rates in the United States in recent history by far with murders and rapes and, and uh, lootings of all sorts. And as you point out, they destroy public property, they tear down monuments, all of this goes without any punishment. Yet when truckers who are doing nothing more than asserting their rights and are not uh, engaging in any criminal activity are nevertheless treated as criminals. And this is true also in, in the United States to this extent. Individuals who have done nothing wrong but are simply trying to communicate that, hey, these people are, are violating individuals' rights uh, who are in Antifa or BLM. Well, they're banned from the internet. They're, you know, they, their opinions are suppressed by big tech. And the, the Democratic Party condemns them. And members of Congress who dare voice an opinion that is uh, contrary to these groups are variously attacked. As you see, even when they try to eat at a restaurant, the BLM and Antifa people come to attack them. The police are conspicuously absent. And uh, you see this whole movement. I mean, is, is, is are the police absent because... Um... Um, Joe Biden is 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 reimagining policing. Is that his view yeah, on exactly. it? Exactly. <laughs> but but get this as well. So you have on on uh, Constitution Avenue uh, in Washington D.C. Uh, this extraordinarily huge BLM uh, a painting that even the mayor will come out and assist with on the street, a public property, and yet when other groups try to present a pro liberty message on the street, they are arrested. Their, uh, their graffiti is eliminated, but the city insists on ensuring that nothing happens to this BLM graffiti. It is this hypocrisy and lack of equal justice under law, which is totally destructive to the rule of law and, and makes it so that your political position determines the relative level of rights that you have in this country. And this is true around the world, this sort of fawning from for example, Trudeau, who, who bows down to BLM and Antifa every chance he gets and allows anything to happen and, and, and lets them go scot-free. But when a trucker presents a viewpoint he doesn't like against mandates, oh dear, it's time to take the police and destroy them. And so that's the quintessential example of a, of a, of a tyrant, a brutal tyrant. And that's what he is. Trudeau, so look, brutal tyrant. So when it gets to unalienable rights, supposedly unalienable rights, um, is there a, a sort of weakening of people's uh, sense of their import because we're seeing, um, if you like, uh, spirituality, religion, now somewhat subservient to this worship of technology? And it seems that the people that are pulling the strings in this world are very, very happy with concepts like transhumanism or human augmentation without any public debate, no ethical debate, despite, I mean, I've been, as you have, involved in the GMO debate for, for 25 years. And um, I do find it astonishing that we can move from that to a point where people happily roll their sleeves up for um, a... Uh, an injection, 
that contains messenger RNA that um, can be transcribed to DNA because of reverse transcriptase. We're beginning to see the beginnings of papers that confirm a very grave concern that many of us had uh, many, many months ago. Um, and yet they are then opening the door to gene editing of human beings, exactly the sort of things that Klaus Schwab talks about in his book, The Fourth Industrial Revolution, that, that supports this notion of producing human beings that have powers that extend beyond those which nature provides. Now, in that context, do people see any power that came from God as somewhat irrelevant? Is that what we're seeing in the courts? Or do you think ultimately we just need to see more cases brought, particularly in the US where you have um, your extraordinary constitution? Um, is it just a matter of time before the we see enough cases that that you know get things back into equilibrium again? Well, I think we're seeing all around the world uh, the rising voices of people against these authoritarian moves. And I think it's increasingly difficult um, as Boris Yeltsin, or I mean, as Boris Johnson, uh, Freudian slip. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, realized, I think, uh, that there comes a point when people in, in the West, you have to understand they've uh, viewed us more or less as ignoramuses and that we would uh, follow the dictates of those who call themselves experts and authorities and would not question authority, but would follow through in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of an opportunity to, to stoke fear in the public mind. And so what they found is that people are a lot more intelligent and a lot more sober thinking than they realize. While they would like to recreate humanity into something that they would prefer, not for our benefit, but for theirs, which is always the resort of those in power. Power is uh, inevitably, and polit political power is used for the, the personal interests, enhancing the personal interests of those in those positions. It's one of the unique opportunities for uh, uh, megalomaniacs to find that they can use public resources and the police power of the state to force people uh, into uh, slavery at their own expense, literally. I, th I think it has another word, it's, it's called conspiracy as well. Yeah. And so what we what we always as the founding fathers in the United States uh, so uh, frequently warned, um, we have to beware of uh, those in power because they will abuse power and will do so in ways that will deprive people of their liberties. I think we've experienced that. I think it's worldwide phenomena. People realize they gave up much in the course of the pandemic. They want their freedoms back. They don't want to live in a, in a in an authoritarian state uh, and this invasion into the Ukraine has caused even a greater degree of sensitivity I think on the part of many people that indeed authoritarianism is real that indeed authoritarianism has certain characteristics that are identifiable and that we who love freedom must fight against it in order to preserve that freedom and that the quintessentially totalitarian regimes of Russia and China and uh, the theocracy of, of Iran and the, and the brutal dictatorship of the little rocket man in uh, North Korea. All of that, all of that is uh, 
is, is, is not unique to those regions. The degrees of authoritarianism are on a spectrum. And if we are not mindful of them, we lose them. As Ronald Reagan famously said, you know, we are but one generation away from a loss of all of our freedoms. And the reason for that is that authoritarianism is always there. There are always those who will abuse power. The need to limit power is, is, is constant. Uh, it, was, it was Jefferson who said, I, he said, uh, were it left to me to choose between government without newspapers or newspapers without government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. His understanding was that freedom must triumph over government. Government has to be the servant of the people. The people have to be sovereign. Their rights must be protected. Freedom is the inevitable course of mankind. We are always going to be driven to freedom, almost like a moth is to the light. We are driven to freedom. It's natural in us. We, no one uh, likes to be a slave. There's no slave on earth that has enjoyed that circumstance and has said, between freedom and slavery, I prefer to be a slave. Slavery is something that is so odious to all of us that we naturally recoil from it. And yet, in the midst of a perceived crisis, somehow people begin to panic and say, I'll part with my freedom of choice. And it, I don't know if it's a majority. Uh, I do know that it happens. And I think it's most unfortunate. That is the weak uh, weakness in the armor. Yeah. If you can maintain a situation where the public is fearful of a grave and external danger, you can manipulate the public and, and, and install, um, yes, basically an authoritarian system. Um, in the UK, obviously, the UK does not have a formally written constitution. What, what I think is very interesting, and you may have followed it, is that some of the work that Professor Robert Blackburn is doing, he, he runs from King's College London, a, a select committee in, in Parliament that, that has been pushing for the development of a Magna Carta II, a written constitution. It, it is now something that is um, gathering support because of Brexit, and, and, I, and I think is... is um, potentially a step in the right direction. You, you'll probably be very pleased with some of the language that does draw on on some of the uh, last um, couple of hundred years of, of the US experience. And um, it seems strange that that the UK might be moving in that direction just at the time when you've seen um, some abuses of your constitution um, because of this uh, so the UK supposed is, danger. The UK is the source of the notion of a republic, the source of the notion that individuals have unalienable rights that are God-given, the source of the notion that the divine right of kings, which we might translate into the divine right of bureaucracy, uh, is, is something that uh, is a fraud, uh, that we all are born of human flesh and bones and have the same basic uh, uh, ancestry. And the point is that uh, we cannot divide people and, and that when it comes to rights, all are entitled to rights at birth all are entitled to protection from those uh, for those rights from the state, and those rights are pre-political. They come from God. John Wilkes is perhaps one of the greatest exponents, uh, a real rogue uh, in his in his personal uh, behavior, um, but nonetheless a great advocate of liberty. And 
a real thorn in the side of the Hanoverian kings, but he became a, a source of inspiration in the American Revolution in the colonial period first, and then later in the revolution. Uh, his, his writings and those of Thomas Gordon and John Trenchard uh, it, forming the opposition political movement to the Hanoverian kings, uh, that whole uh, history is English and that whole history is brilliant and uh, is, is a lodestone for uh, the UK that ought to cause uh, people, hold on just a second, ought to cause people to rally around uh, and accept that uh, in England that uh, their true destiny lies in a recognition of a of the inalienable rights of their own people, and that ought to be a basis for reformation of government. It ought to be that no longer Parliament is the source of rights for people in England. Uh, it ought to be that rights are understood to be pre-political. I would hope that that's a that's a wonderful blessing uh, that we have enjoyed from the English precedent, because we were fortunately at a, at an epoch. Uh, where we were creating a government when that birth out of the Enlightenment um, happened to be uh, uh, wearing wearing its swaddling clothes in uh, in 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 the America in America, but of course it was rejected by the Canadians. And notice the contrast: they they remained affiliated with the Crown during the Revolution. They were asked uh, by uh, us to join in the Revolution and uh, later to become a traitor, Benedict Arnold at the time uh, attempted to flip Ottawa and to have uh, defeat the British there and create an uprising that never happened because the Canadians were more wed to the crown and didn't have their, their own movement. Even in the colonies, by the way, the Tories outnumbered the uh, revolutionaries in America by a considerable margin but over time became timid in their support for the crown and enabled really the revolution to go forward uh, by that timidity. Absolutely. What, what they couldn't have foreseen is the way in which technology, just from a, a human rights perspective, I mean, I, I think this is absent from the debate other than when you look at things like bodily autonomy, which is built into human rights, this, this potential with transhumanist agendas to be able to manipulate the human being, you know, through technological means is, is, is quite an obscene process if it's not protected um, via an unalienable right. And, and I think there's, you know, a lot of people see the concept of bodily autonomy as a kind of selfish, you know, uh, you know, viewpoint that people have that is diametrically opposed to the kind of, Hegelian collectivist ideal that's being pushed upon us. It's a difficult time um, to, to try and, you know, argue for individual sovereignty. Um, how, how do you see that? Well, um, I see opportunity. Uh, and the reason is that it's so outrageous uh, when you talk about the implementation of these things, that you're that that the, in China, for example, due to 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 gruesome authoritarianism, they're able to take soldiers and to manipulate their DNA and to subject them to all sorts of uh, transformations that probably have resulted in numerous people dying 
but they're they're attempting to create this superhuman soldier, uh, and they and they're using all sorts of modern technology to try to bring that about. Um, and we don't know the extent of it. We don't know the horrors that are associated with it. We can only speculate. But um, the awareness of that and your awareness, for example, and those of your colleagues that this is happening and sounding the alarm and saying that this is unethical and this is immoral and this poses a threat to individual autonomy and liberty and that the state should not be engaged in this sort of thing is really uh, very helpful and people are readily willing to accept that, I think. So while it is a threat, I think the more powerful threat comes from those things that are insidious. I, I, I'm not a big fan of Louis Brandeis, but I am of one of the quotes. Uh, he was brilliant, but he was an authoritarian. But uh, strangely enough, he produced a quote that is quite anti-authoritarian but and very insightful. And he said, beware of insidious encroachment by men of zeal, well-intended, but without understanding. And indeed, we ought to beware. We ought to beware of these people who wish to, like uh, Bill Gates, wish to recreate the world uh, in, in ways they find pleasing and to use people as guinea pigs in a mass experiment of their, to amuse them, to basically uh, indicate to them uh, the way to a world without pollution or without other things that annoy them. They're willing to go to great, great uh, lengths uh, to limit population. Or, or you could, you could right. argue to enslave more people and to increase their power. This seems to be the driver of authoritarians generally. Right. They're obsessed with power. They, they operate, you know, if we take a look um, with my book, The Authoritarians, I, I track uh, this authoritarian element um, back to the antebellum South. And interestingly enough, because it so naturally supports slavery, um, the leaders of the South, uh, the Confederacy, and the intellectual leaders of the Confederacy, you can use a small I for that, um, look to uh, uh, Friedrich Hegel as the basis to replace Jefferson in their uh, love of a model of government. And what they found in Hegel was this glorification of collectivism and this idea that people in and independently are actually antithetical to the, the achievement of progress. The progress depends upon uh, universal submission to the will of experts who are embodied in the state and that the state is itself living it's organic and that it is the only way to create progress that the state can through its experts envision the future and achieve a movement towards that glorious future by using those expert powers so long as the people understand that it is their duty to follow and that when they deviate from that due to individualism uh, they retard progress and so it is that he was able to say uh, Friedrich Hegel, that slavery was not a bad thing, that slavery actually was the normal result of the historical dialectic, that as one population or race defeats another population or race, 
the enslavement of that inferior population, which is obviously inferior because it was defeated, um, it is a good thing because it enables the slave to cohabit and, and live amongst his superiors and thereby holds out the promise for the slave that he or she may ultimately aspire to that level of greatness never before seen by them because they hadn't been conquered by the superior race. So this whole notion of the uh, beneficent um, uh, owner of some other human that comes out of Hegel. And so it was used in the South to justify the institution of slavery, that slavery is not terrible. What's terrible is the capitalism in the North. Capitalism is terrible in the North because these people are living on wretched wages. It's the Marxist, uh, it's the entire Marxist notion of the, the oppressed class. And they say, by contrast, the slave is given cradle to grave protection by an owner who pays for the slave's food, pays for the slave's medical care, ensures that the slave does something that the slave is able to do, that this is an inferior race. They called it the mudsill theory. It was that that's that's the language that was used to describe to build a house, you have to have a foundation, which, which is called the mudsill. And the mudsill is necessarily grubby work. I mean, this is very tough and arduous manual labor. Well, there is a race that is capable of doing that and that has a history of, of, of doing it. And so that race necessarily to ensure progress must be at that mudsill level for the white race to advance. So this is the concept. And this is, this is based on Hegelian collectivism. It's based on Marxism. And then this gets adopted. You know, you have the Civil War and you have the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery. And you have the 14th Amendment intent to protect the rights of all of the slaves who are now freemen and, and of all people in the United States uh, against the arbitrary deprivation of their liberties by government. Um, and then you have this interesting phenomenon, which is the intellectual class actually was intrigued by the notion of controlling people through Hegelian Marxism. Uh, Hegel was Marx's teacher. Uh, and so, so what do they do? They adopt this notion of authoritarianism through the administrative state. In the progressive era, they, 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 dis, they, they condemn uh, the classical liberal model that the founding fathers uh, espoused. And they go to Germany in droves from all of the major universities in the United States to study in the historic schools of Germany and learn this Hegelian collectivism. There they are taught directly by their teachers that John Locke was a fraud, that individual liberty is total rubbish, that it's anti-progress, and that, and that uh, the American constitution is predicated on it and is rubbish, and that the Declaration of Independence, its second paragraph is predicated on it and is rubbish. And they come back and then they teach this Hegelian socialist model, and they go into societies that adopt it, and then they advocate eugenics, and they advocate all of these collectivist notions to improve the race and to improve society. So they reestablish through the government, through the administrative state, both at the state level and the federal level, this repulsive notion that people can be enslaved and forced to do 
what elites think is in the best interests of society. But this, this exact process is happening today with, with transhumanism. The, the, the very fact that, that um, Schwab and others will argue that there are a whole range of tasks that humans no longer have to engage with, that you can have transhuman robots, people with gene-edited brains who can go about doing these duties, that you can sign up for a social contract, which is a contract into this collectivist ideal that allows you to own nothing but still be happy. Um, and, um, and, and transhumanism is, is, is the driving force there. And, you know, if you maintain the crisis long enough, um, they're, they're going to make some progress. So, Jonathan, I, I wanted to, in the last chapter of your book, you, you give um, an astonishing array of, of um, recommendations to, to your readers to say, guys, you've got to now not sit back. You cannot be a passive bystander any longer. Um, if you don't want this authoritarian creep to to provide a society that you would not want your children or grandchildren to be growing up in. So um, can you give us um, a few of your top line pieces of advice that people can just go out and do today, tomorrow? So um, there are numerous ones there listed, but I can say that one that I think will be intriguing to people, particularly in the United States, is this notion that I actually wrote into legislation that uh, former Congressman Ron Paul introduced session after session with no interest from Congress. And that comes as no surprise. It's called the Congressional Responsibility and Accountability Act. And under it, the authoritarian state, that is the administrative state, would effectively be neutered in a way that is entirely consistent with the Constitution. How, do, how does that happen? In the, in the American Constitution, power is vested in, in three branches of government, the legislative, executive, and the judicial. The power to make law, for example, is vested in Congress. It is an exclusive power, cannot be redelegated under Lockean uh, principles, could not be redelegated. The founding fathers understood that these powers that were vested could not be redelegated. Obviously, if you were capable of redelegating those powers, you could destroy the government itself. And that indeed is what the administrative state has largely done. Three quarters of all of the laws of the United States are not the product of those the American people elect, but rather the product of the unelected heads of bureaucratic agencies who create regulations that are laws. And so what this uh, law would do was would be prevent any regulation from being implemented or enforced until it had been adopted by Congress as a law and signed into law by the president. So that would end the administrative state's promulgation and then existing regulations would all sunset within three years unless Congress adopted them and, and authorized the agencies to act with them. I would go one step further because I don't trust even that. And the ultimate goal ought to be to abolish the administrative state and to favor the constitution as the founding fathers designed it and for, for acts, for example, of fraud. We don't need a federal trade commission at all. We, we have laws that enable the Department of Justice to prosecute and the Department of Justice is immediately answerable to the president. It is not an independent regulatory commission and the public may vote the president out if they dislike the actions of the attorney general or the Department of Justice. 
Um, and, and so what this would do is ensure a very critical principle of the American Constitution, which is that just, power, just governments are based on the consent of the governed. The reason why the American Constitution had to be adopted in, in uh, conventions, in the states, by the elected representatives of the states is because they had to assure the consent of the governed to the constitution and the delegation of powers within it. And so when they adopted it publicly, they therefore assented to, to have that uh, constitution in existence. They didn't relinquish any rights, those were reserved, but they specifically granted certain powers, but only those. And so when government presumes to uh, accumulate powers without Article 5 amendment to the Constitution, it violates the Constitution. And the remarkable thing about the administrative state, at least in the United States, is that it is itself unconstitutional because it was never created through Article 5 amendments. It was just a power assumed. And it, it, it causes legislative, executive, and judicial powers, those that are vested in the Constitution in those branches, to be redelegated to single hands, what James Madison described as the very definition of tyranny, what Montesquieu described as the very definition of tyranny. The combination of any two powers, they said, legislative, executive, and judicial, is the very definition of tyranny. And so we have a tyrannical state by the founder's definition. It's not just that the, you can muse that the founding fathers, if they were alive today, would be revolted by what has happened to their government. We know from what they said that it is contrary to what they established and is unconstitutional. It should have been held, but hasn't been held. And it's due to, as I explain in the book, these political movements of authoritarianism. It, it, sa it sounds really radical because you're calling on democracy. You're saying, let's reinstate a democratic process. You're also calling on, on small government. And of course, um, there's an interesting perception in many people's minds because the machine has been out there suggesting that um, small governments tend to be alt-right and racist. Um, yeah, what, what, what I think you, you lay down so nicely in your book, and here's another plug for it, is that the two are not mutually exclusive. You can have, in fact, if you really respect human dignity, what it is to be human, you actually need a, a live, smaller government that doesn't monopolize you know, your life and your rights, um, that, that allows free will to, to take form. But, but there's a, something of a PR job to be done because the spin that tries to condemn small government there there is you know with this authoritarian shift is is a shift towards ever larger government it's moving in precisely the wrong direction well, and you know, moving even... from move, moving from SARS-CoV-2 into um the current Russian Ukraine war um you know gives a, an argument for even larger government so we need to unpick that one surely but i think it also gives rise to an argument against large government and you remember in the United States, it was Bill Clinton who said the era of big government is over, uh, who declared that. Uh, and this was the product, really, of Reagan's movement that he began. When I came to Washington in the 80s as a young whippersnapper, 
uh, in the Reagan administration and the Federal Communications Commission. Um, the, the buzz throughout Washington was that we were going to get rid of these agencies. Um, and, and there was this revolutionary mindset in the sense of reestablishing the sovereignty of the people and their rights against uh, big government. Um, you know, I think Reagan famously said that uh, uh, the, 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 the words that were most feared in the American lexicon were, um, I'm from the government here to help you. Uh, the, so it, 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 there, the, the struggle will always be there and, uh, between, between individual liberty and abuse of government power that invades those liberties. But, but, always- but as, as Jonathan E. Maud famously said, uh, in the title of his own book is, is, you know, the rise of tyranny. Tyranny has, has, has been on the rise that what was that 2012 or something, yeah. You know, we're 10 years on yes. and we're seeing tyranny at an all time high. We so. are. We are. Uh, and yes, but we are also seeing at the same time, thank, thank goodness, uh, a rise in the movement to reassert and protect individual liberty okay. so that large numbers of people are winning. If we take this, the state of Virginia, Commonwealth of Virginia. Here you had uh, McAuliffe, who was the candidate for governor in Virginia, and, and Youngkin, who was his opponent, Republican opponent. And McAuliffe, just a month or two before the election, uh, had a significant margin of popular support. And yet things were shifting. You had a Biden administration that was destroying the American economy by uh, destroying the the backbone of the American economy, the fossil fuel industry. And you see increases in in gas prices. Suddenly there's inflation because of massive government spending. The federal government in the United States dumped trillions of dollars into the economy through social welfare programs of various kinds. And the effect of that has been staggering on giving us extraordinary inflation. All right. And then you also had something which is authoritarianism hitting home. You had school boards attempting to indoctrinate children in Marxism through critical race theory at the same time that they were basically educating children that their genders were optional and that they could choose not to be a boy if they were a boy and be a girl and that counselors in schools could help them get medical care to brutalize them and transform their uh, anatomy so that they would then be another gender, not really, but they led them to believe that, that you can have any gender you want and so forth. And this whole movement, which is so radical left, had taken over education in, in the s- cities across the United States. And so here Yunkin stands for the proposition that parents have rights, which has always been the truth in the American constitution from the beginning, you as a parent have the right to ensure the upbringing of your child. And that right does not leave you when your child enters the schoolhouse gate. And so Yunkin was saying, I'm going to get rid of critical race theory. Parents have a right to influence the conduct of the schools. They have a right to be heard in education. They have a right to have their children protected against sexual abuse and uh, child abuse in the schools. And I'm going to change it. And I'm going to get rid of the mask mandates. 
and I'm going to make sure that children are not forced to be vaccinated, and I'm going to restore individual freedom of choice. And while it was a close margin, 2%, he swept uh, the state. And what was very significant is that those suburbs that had voted uh, for Biden against Trump, the percentages of those supporting McAuliffe, who is the Biden analog in Virginia, dropped by some 13 or 14 percent in the suburbs in favor of Yunkin, which caused the, uh, him to be able to take a state they call a blue state because it was, it was assumed to be democratic, to become a red state. And this is indicative, I think, of the overall movement around the world, which is people coalescing around the idea that they have power in numbers and that they want to assert their rights and that they're not going to allow a tyrant like Macron to compel them to be, be forced into vaccination and be forced into a limited way of life because the dictator is assuming power or the same in Canada. And we're seeing these movements all over the world. And that's the hope of freedom. And that's also a greater uh, 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 renaissance in liberty than we've seen in many, many, many years. People take their rights for granted when they're not threatened. People oftentimes take their rights for granted to such an extent that the rights uh, that they don't realize their rights have been taken away from them until they actually have been. Uh, and so this is promising enormously because people in, in, in England, people in France, people in, in uh, Spain, people in the United States, people in Canada, in very large numbers are unified in their assertion of rights of freedom of choice against the dictates of government. Absolutely. I think it also supports the notion that it's part of the human condition that things have to get worse before they get better for people to really wake up to take stock of, of what their often their, their parents or grandparents, great-grandparents have fought for to deliver the freedoms that they've enjoyed up until now. Um, so, so, and I know amongst the many things that you recommend in the, in the last chapter of your book are, are, are to just really push for that freedom of speech, um, you know, be a dis dissenter, the right to protest, you must protest. Uh, and of course, we see there is a link now, increasingly, I'm sure the, the, the element that's going to be used, having been tested on the Canadian truckers, is, is to hit people who are not playing the game of the narrative in their hip pocket and, and to go after the financial systems that support them and their families. And of course, it's, it's interesting when you look at the experiment that El Salvador has been going through with cryptocurrencies to say, look, we, we want to try an experiment. And, and you'll see that nearly all the mainstream media are saying that it's a failed experiment. It's over. They've given up on it. When you speak to people from El Salvador or, or, or follow the, the president himself, you'll see actually they're, they're making progress with it. They want to opt out. So when you see whole nation states, sovereign nations deciding we don't want to play the game that really is a reflection of the desire for more liberty, more freedom from the system. Um, Jonathan, um, a huge thank you. Could you just leave us with some parting wisdom? You have so much of it. 
Um, there's a huge amount of it contained within your book. Um, like your previous books, it is, in my view, essential reading for anyone who values freedoms that, that are now so heavily under threat. Um, just a passing minute or so from you to, to our audience. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Well, you're quite welcome. I think uh, rather than try to draw from my feeble self, uh, I'll draw from Thomas Jefferson. And uh, this is magnificent. He, he, he described or defined the sum of good government. And he says, a wise and frugal government shall restrain men from injuring one another, shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their pursuits of industry and improvement, and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. <laughs> and that brilliant statement written in, in, in the 1700s, um, actually 1803, it was written in 1803 in his inaugural address, uh, really is the essence of what good government is. He also gave us the most brilliant definition of liberty, the term liberty, uh, that liberty is not that which the law allows, because the law, he says, is but the tyrant's will. Rather, liberty is the, the right to exercise your freedoms to the extent that they don't deprive the equal right of another. And that is really the goal. That should be our globally, for those who love liberty, that should be the goal to limit government, so circumscribe its powers that we may say that government may only intervene when an individual deprives another of their equal rights. And uh, I mean rights writ largely to property and to liberty and and uh, the pursuit life. of happiness as well. Yes. And, you know, on that point, uh, just another little historical footnote, when Thomas Jefferson referred to the pursuit of happiness, some people have, have tried to write that into some sort of a esoteric conception that is not capable of any definition. In point of fact, he understood that in Lockean terms, and that is to say, when you mix your, your liberty with your labor, and you do so in addressing property, so you are making something, you are inventing something, you are creating something. That is the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness is to take your liberty, to mix it with your labor, to affect property, to produce innovation. Yeah. So it's an endorsement of free enterprise. And in fact, the founding father- And, and creativity. Yes. And the founding fathers comprehended, because it was in 1776 that uh, uh, um, we have the, the, the birth of capitalism uh, from a little Scottish fellow who we all know, and uh, the wealth of nations. Um, they were aware of the wealth of nations, and they understood it to be the death of mercantilism. And they meant for mercantilism to die. They understood it and they appreciated it because they viewed it as oppressive and de depriving people of their property rights. So they did not, uh, there's a rewrite of history here too, we won't go into it, but um, they did not distinguish between economic liberty and political liberty. It was all liberty. That's a modern creation that somehow your right to work 
should not be protected against government regulation. Yeah, no, look, fa fantastic. And it, I think that's happened because of this desire to enslave people who have not even realized that they are enslaved to the system. It's becoming apparent. And the fantastic thing is, is people are waking up. Um, Jonathan, a huge thank you. Um, we'll give some more call outs for your book. Um, um, thank you so much. We, we'll, we'll give lots of references so people can find out other, other elements of your extraordinary work. Um, in my view, um, your time, despite the fact that many people won't know that that FDA disclaimer is the result of your work back in the late 90s with the Pearson and Shalala case that um, spods like me have followed for years. Um, you've been for so long um, a huge hero of, of, of so many of us. On January 15th, 1999, the uh, United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit in a three to zero decision uh, ruled that the Food and Drug Administration's uh, four health claim denials that they had uh, were unconstitutional under the First Amendment, ordered the agency essentially to put into place a disclaimer approach uh, to handling health claims, and ruled that the agency's uh, refusal to define a, the standard of review for health claims constituted an arbitrary and capricious act in violation of the Administrative Procedure Act. I really feel your real work is still to come because we need to see some of these constitutional rights reinstated. So um, a, a massive thank you to you, Jonathan. Well, thank you so much.